0: I'm so glad that we are uh, finally able to really get into 1 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is going to speak to abundant life in amazing ways. How many have seen God's presence really move and experienced his touch? I have several times throughout my life, I've prayed for one guy that was deaf in Mexico, and he received his hearing. There was a gal that was standing right here and a little girl was praying for her one Sunday morning, she had a collapsed lung, we had been praying for her, she went to the doctor, the lung was restored, we saw the x-rays and the, or the, the, the pictures of what had happened. Um, God does things. He speaks, and he speaks through his word, and I am so grateful for his word. I love the word of God, and I hope you treasure it as much as well, and as we get into this, there's going to be a lot of things. Uh, Paul's an equal opportunity encourager and offender, (laughs) so no matter where we are. Now, we've preached through the several things in the last few years we've gone from the gospel of John we did the we did acts we did Romans and then we did a lot of thematic things and now we're in first Corinthians and um, then we're going to go into a my goal is to go Old Testament the New Testament again and so here we are we have uh, arrived and uh, it's very exciting so uh, first Corinthians should probably just call be called first Seattle Um, I think by kind of the tone um, and in our first California, some have nicknamed it, maybe. I have no idea, but uh, that's probably more apropos. But um, it's, an, it's an economic center, it's, a, it's an entertainment center. Uh, Corinth is, is the Las Vegas of, of its time, of Greece. And a city of uh, experimentation, moral experimentation, sexual experimentation, wickedness, uh, prostitution is huge. Gambling is huge. Drunkenness is huge. Um, when, during the time period, when someone, there was a lot of plays that people did. There was these theaters. And I'm, we're going to take a look at some pictures here in a moment. But there were these theaters, and, you know, there was a lot of plays. And if you, no, one, no actor wanted to be cast as the Corinthian because it was a nickname that they gave to the person who was silly and drunk all the time. So if you were uh, named the Corinthian, yeah, nobody wanted to do that. Uh, there was a saying also in the day, no one can afford a trip to Corinth. Because the applying of the gambling and prostitution and, and the free, so flow, uh, free flow of alcohol so much, it was, it was uh, a, a, just a terrible vice place to, to visit. It was a Roman colony and uh, during this time, everything pretty much was, and Corinth was really popular for its games as well, Uh, next to um, Athens, which was only 50 miles away, so Athens, Greece is, uh, you know, not that far, but Corinth was second in popularity to the games, so they had uh, Olympic-style games and going on there, and as we began, I... I want us to take a tour of Corinth, so I have a couple of maps, and this is the first message in the series, so I want to kind of lay the foundation. So I wish I had a laser pointer. Boy, you can't see that at all. Look at how beautiful that screen is. That is, oh my lands, 3,000, the laser projector, I'm telling you. <laughs> Somebody can just write me a, t- this is not going to work, is it? Yeah, you, you can barely, you can't really see Greece at all. There's Greece. Italy you can all turn around and look at that one or look over here I guess Uh, yeah I don't think that's going to help it's just so we've gotten it as bright as it'll go because it's going out on us so um, but anyway so there's Italy and then there's there's Greece there and the setting is important because Corinth was a major port city go to the next one maybe we can get some detail oh my goodness you can't see anything This is terrible. Um, It's not going to do any good looking at that one. Just look at that one. Uh, Just turn around. I am so sorry for those that are online. You'll just have to pretend in your mind. Imagine what's going on. Um, Greece has this division. So you can see up onto the right-hand corner, if you're turned around, yeah, uh, the right-hand corner, there's uh, northern Greece, and then this big part right in the proportion is the lower part connected by this little peninsula, if you will, and there's there's this narrow strip of land three and a half miles wide that joins northern Greece and southern Greece called an isthmus, and try saying that fast five times, but um, th- this isthmus joins both the north and the south together, and Corinth lays just on the upper side or just on the north coast of in right there in the sea, uh, next to the ocean, uh, the sea, and if you want to travel from Athens to Greece, which is you could just travel, you know, straight across, and it wasn't that far. It was like driving from here to Seattle, so, or if you had to walk, obviously you had to walk, so Corinth was a huge port city at the time, and to go from the Aegean Sea to the Adriatic Sea, um, you had only, you had just a couple of options, so you could cross the Isthmus, if you brought your ship in, and you had goods, and you wanted to go from one to the other, um, the Isthmus, you could go across the Isthmus, take the cargo out walk across the land or cart it across the land if your ship was small enough they'd put it on rollers and they would roll it across I have a another picture here as well um, you can see here's a better picture of the isthmus not there uh, right. back there um, you can see there's the isthmus and there lies Corinth that, and that little hook right there on the left upper left and so they would this isthmus uh, was to go around was 250 miles and so um, it was a treacherous shipping route too. Um, there were rocks and headwinds that were so strong. Um, there was a saying in the day that if you want to go around the south of Greece, let him first make out his will. It was so treacherous. So they would put the whole ship on rollers or they would carry it across, put it on another ship and, and sail to Athens or wherever they wanted to. So you might say, well, why don't they just dig a trench from one side to the other? Actually, Caesar Nero attempted this and failed, and subsequently, other times as well, of course, the big war with Rome and Corinth joined those fighting against Rome ultimately, Um, but um, it was more difficult. And listen, it wasn't actually accomplished until 1893. So this was a major, in fact, I have a couple pictures of modern day, maybe we can see these. Oh, yes, there we go. So you can see uh, some of the difficulty that it would have been with their technology back in uh, Caesar and Nero, which was right there at the edge of the Christian time, Pentecost. But you might we look at this and we see you know the challenges that probably happened um, developing. And to this, to this day, if you go from Athens to Corinth, you will cross this isthmus. You will you will you are encountered. So Corinth is a major figure as well in the history of the Roman Empire and major uh, cultures of Roman and Greek are clashing, right? And one family ruled called the Cypselid. And the Kypslid, uh in the late 5th century of, in Corinth fought against Athens. And Corinth later joined a lot of Greek states in their fight against Rome, against the domination of Rome. But about the same time, you may have heard this story about Leonidas and the Spartans, right? This happened, coincidentally, uh, led by Xerxes, the dramatized million-man army. Some thinks it, it was much more like 200,000 men, but nonetheless, with his army of 300, he, you know, stood his best. He ultimately, you know, perished. In the battle, but his fight was incredible because he killed so many of them. In comparison, so according to uh, one geographer back in the day, in Strabo, who lived in 64 BC to 21 BC before Jesus, before Christ, um, when when he, the defied Caesar uh, moved the people back into the city to rebuild it, and they started unearthing the foundations and things. they found all these graves, right? Well, once news got out, everybody raided the graves because they're finding this gold and brass and, and, and the whole place was just decimated by treasure hunters coming in and digging up. There was no grave left undug. Corinth was totally destroyed. Um, Corinth was a hub for Greek culture as well um, with more than 100,000 people at this, about 100,000 people at this time. It was the seat of government. It became very wealthy because of its prime location. Uh, there I've got some other pictures here. I think, there we go. Here's some of the ruins of modern day Corinth. Um, and I'm sure you may have seen some of these elsewhere. You can see the Colosseum there. Um, still standing to this day. I have a map, uh, a little, uh, next one, the next slide there. There we go. Um, there's a, there's some temples. You can, yeah, you can see it on here, that's great. Uh, the Temple of Octavia, there was a lot of emperor worship going on. There was uh, these huge theaters, also known as temples, places where plays were performed, um, the Temple of Octavia, Artemis, Hera, Apollo, Zeus, um, Isis. And these temples, many understand that this is Greek mythology, right? Well, they started as plays. And hearsay. See, people created these stories, and these stories escalated into these godlike figures. You know that we get even our modern day movies, like you know Wonder Woman. She's from Z- Zeus or whatever. I don't know. But, you know the whole thing is it's like crazy. So, but the Temple of Octavia, uh, all of these are there, and Venus was. Uh, Aphrodite's Roman name and it was so rich that this temple of Aphrodite had a thousand priestesses or prostitutes um, that would come down um, when the sailors would come in and ply their trade or, you know, uh, to make their living and they would support support themselves, support the temple of Aphrodite, much like in Ephesus where the goddess of the temple of Diana was there, the, the fertility god, um, and, and But you can look that up later. Anyway, so um, here in Corinth, we, we have a city without a moral code. It has its own reputation everywhere, it's much worse than Athens, and it's a very loose culture, a place of debauchery. Um, the, the Aphrodite's theater a temple that was so basically known as this massive brothel, um, you can understand how there was a saying, not everyone can afford a trip to Corinth, right? So it's this place of such spiritual darkness that Paul goes to. He goes to this place, and he's got this great drive. We find the church, and there are similar issues in the church in Corinth that there are in the culture of Corinth ambitions for status are in the church, how people are dressed, Corinth was cutting edge of fashion and things like this, and even Paul's role as a preacher was questioned because he was considered sort of this backwoods educated type Pharisee compared to the expectation of the Ivy League guys like we find um, in the Praetorium um, in Athens, And, and he wasn't what a public speaker should look like, I mean Paul was a short bald guy that wasn't a good preacher, I mean one guy fell asleep doing a sermon, fell out the window and died. I mean he's boring right. <laughs> I'm not saying all of us, but there's obviously the anointing of his Holy Spirit on him. Praise God, God could use anybody I'm standing here today. Anyway, but he deals with these issues, the same issues in the church, drunkenness, sexual perversion, um, their lifestyle, they're fighting, they're having sex uh, with people in their family. He deals with issues concerning married people and singled people and and people living together. He deals with pagan gods. He He comes with both barrels loaded, and he carefully instructs the church that this is the way that God has intended for you to live. These are the ideas from his word, and he shoots at everybody. He doesn't hold anything back from anyone, so... He goes to Corinth, and he's to start a church, and, and he's planning a second journey, but the Holy Spirit keeps him from going. Remember, he gets a vision, the book of Acts, um, you, we can find all this. In fact, the first scripture we're going to read today is from Acts 18, if you want to turn there, but um, he he the Holy Spirit tells him not to go, uh, but he sins. he gives him a vision from a man from Macedonia, saying, come, and so he goes to, what does he do, he goes to uh, Philippi then to Thessalonica and then he goes to uh, where does he go next he goes to Berea then he goes to Athens right so he's in Athens and this is where he has that big speech as they're all gathered around they're listening and he sees the the monument to the unknown God and we're going to talk about that at some point point. Un- and he what does he do he says this unknown God let me explain him to you Man, it's good stuff. Um, So he goes to, while he's in Athens, um, he's he's talking among the philosophers, and he goes then to Corinth. And he spends 18 months in Corinth. And here is where he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And they got kicked out of Rome. If you remember in our Roman series, the emperor had... Claudius Caesar had all of the Jews kicked out of Rome and it was because of this issue. It's very interesting because Claudius Caesar got sick and tired of the Jews and Christians fighting and it was because of this issue from a person called Christus. Which many believe is a reference to Christ. So Jews and Greeks are coming to know Jesus, and they are they're having church, and the Jews are angry that they're saying Jesus was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy concerning the Christ. This is the guy. The Jews are upset, they're angry, and there's all this commotion. So Claudius Caesars, a bit, get out of here. I don't want your mess here. So he kicks out all the Jews because they're causing a the fuss. So he says, You guys, everyone out. So Paul goes to the temple when he gets there, and he shares the gospel. He gets kicked out of the synagogue, goes to the house next door, Titius Justice's house, and while he's at Justice's house, the church starts in Corinth. And he's there, and the ruler of the synagogue is Crispus, and he comes to Christ. Paul gets the ruler of the synagogue to come to know Jesus. Crispus comes to know Christ and gets obviously loses his job, right because he can't be the leader of the synagogue anymore so he's hanging out with Paul and him at Justice's house and the people stir up so much trouble and they bring Paul to court in front of the governor Gallio and I love Gallio I just love this guy he's definitely the separation guy right so they they bring Paul before the governor and they say he's and he says hey hey dude this is according to your laws the Jews are upset with Paul, and so they say, you guys deal with this on their own. So, basically, they get out of here. So, the people take the new head of the synagogue, Sosthenes, who is leaning toward Christ, apparently. They stone him. <laughs> they, they, they beat him up, and um, they beat him up anyway, So, which is interesting because Sosthenes ultimately comes to Jesus as well. I mean, Paul is just making a mess, right? He's making a mess. And let's read about that in Acts 18. So here we go. Acts 18, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered that all the Jews leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath reasoned reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. While Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles.'" So Paul left the synagogue and went to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Worshipper of God, excuse me, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And his entire uh, excuse me, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not keep be silent. Isn't that a great charge for us? Yeah. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So I love Paul's story because here is a guy raised in Judaism. He is very religious, lots of rules. He has a lot of regulations. This is your day off. This is your schedule these are your friends, this is your food, very religious, very organized, very tidy, but he didn't know Jesus, and so he didn't love God, he really, he he didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and sometimes religion is the worst thing for people, religion can get in the way of seeing relationship with Jesus. People see all the rules and all the don'ts and they think, well, that must be what they're talking about. That's why they act so weird and, you know, they're uptight all the time. They seem that way. Because there's so much people acting religiously when we should be acting relationally that Christ has called us into an intimacy with him by the presence of his Holy Spirit that is inexplicable, it's incomprehensible, it's, it's something that has to be grabbed onto and believed so the Spirit of God can touch the person's life. And so he's on this road, he's very religious, so he, he's going off to hurt Christians, Jesus comes down from heaven, basically long story short, knocks him on the ground and blinds him, Right and and which is compelling argument that maybe you should obey, obey. If Jesus knocks you down and you get blind, maybe you should listen to what he says. Um, so Paul is blind for three days. So maybe he's a little stubborn, right? Um, um, and God tells him you're going to be a missionary, but he took three days for him to change his mind, apparently. So he starts worshiping Jesus and becomes a missionary. He becomes a church planter and goes from city to city. And people become Christians. He establishes the church and and then gets the secular job to support his ministry habit. I did that uh, for many years before I was a full-time vocational pastor, uh, 17 of the 20... Seven years I've been in Abundant Life, 26 and a half years I've been in Abundant Life. I worked a full-time job as well. So he does this until he comes as a sport from a church in Macedonia, and they start supporting him, right, he gives his life to these people, much like our missionaries, that we receive the missionary faith promise cards, we support them, you've heard them speak. he's doing the same thing, he's getting support, and he's going, so he gives his life to these people in Corinth, he establishes the church, and the church was, we don't know exactly how many people, probably 50 or 60 people, and he spends time with them, teaching them the Word of God, he teaches them how to live for God, how to be, have a life that is led by the Holy Spirit, how to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, all of these issues he covers throughout this whole whole letter here. So they're worshiping Jesus, loving each other for 18 months while he's there, and and he feels like it's time for him to move on. He's gotta go, he's gotta continue his mission. So he gets them set up, he establishes leaders, and leaves them with the idea that they can reach Corinth for Christ. It is their calling now. So they know the truth, but that's not what happens. We know this because uh, the reports come back from most likely a woman in the church had written Paul some letters, and um, she writes that, hey, the people here, they're getting drunk on the communion wine, they're suing each other, they're having sex with their relatives, they're, in our version of the day, they're watching porn constantly, they're believing these crazy ideas. This church is so jacked up that Paul actually writes four letters to them we have 1 Corinthians, but it's most likely actually 2 Corinthians because he says in chapter 5, my former letter that I wrote to you, right? He responds, he's responding, and there's another one missing. So Second Corinthians is probably 4 Corinthians, but all that is just wet for now. But After he went away, some people went to visit him and kept saying, hey, Paul, like, like everybody's drunk at church, everybody's getting naked, and this, is this a problem? Paul's like, Yeah! You know, this is a problem. You know, this shouldn't be happening. There's, there's an issue here, right? There's something going on. They're getting drunk on the communion wine. <clears throat> so uh, people are suing each other, fighting. And it was not a life in Jesus. They're singing Amazing Grace, and they're trading shot glasses. They're, they're lost. They've decided that the, the vices of the world are better, and they've gravitated back to culture. Let me tell you something, friends. There should be a clear line between the one following Jesus in the culture and the one that is not. We don't lord it. We're not better than anybody. We're not saying that. But the convictions of a life that is following Jesus bear fruit of a life that is following Jesus. And so Paul then he's writing these letters to clean this mess up. And as soon as he leaves, they go crazy. He actually wrote these four letters, so um, I'm thinking he's so frustrated, maybe. One of the reasons, prob- I don't know, this is my thought. Maybe he said some unfiltered words in his first letter, so we don't have it today. Maybe he got so upset that he, I don't know, you know, it's, just, it's a joke, obviously, huh? So um, with that said, he's speaking to the church. He's not speaking to a single person, but he's speaking to everybody. And not just everybody alone, but everybody together, the church. The term church came before Jesus said the word, but it embraces this idea. So the approach to most of the Bible is that, is God's word to me? God's word is true. When we look at this epistle, like, uh, like 1 Corinthians, we, we need to keep in mind that this is God's word Also for us together, that we are one body. So here we go, 1 Corinthians 1. All that, and I haven't even read the first verse. (laughs) 20 minutes just getting there. Hallelujah, praise God. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. There he is. He gets saved right after he gets beat up, thrown out of the temple. (laughs) I love it. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we read Paul's Typical letter, they all start this way. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians start. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and Paul, God the Father who raised him from the dead unto the churches which are in Galatia. Grace be to you from God our Father and peace. He always starts with that grace and peace, um, which is really which is really important. So it's it's a it's a kind of greeting. He introduces himself that was an apostle. He comes right out and says he's, he re, re, he's reestablishing his authority with them. He's saying I am an apostle. When one makes a claim of an apostle, they're making a founder of the church claim. I'm sure that you've heard people say that they're apostle this or apostle that today. There are different denomination groups even in America that have status as a people that put the term apostle before their name now it in in some sense and in this in that context, obviously we are all apostles because the scripture says that we are sent as well. all of us are sent in some sense um, um, but someone um, directly someone that Sent a message. They were an um, um, emissary. And that's what apostle means. They were an emissary uh, from a leader on a diplomatic mission. That's more clarifying what the word apostle means. But um, a royal representative of a king. The word apostolos means to be, to be sent out. Uh, apostles were sent um, apostle, the word used, apostle, is 79 times in the New Testament. Now, as I say, it refers, it can refer to all of us in the sense that Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I am sending you, right? But typically it meant um, to the 13 men plus one, uh, 12 original apostles. Judas at film was replaced, uh, Matthias replaced him. And of course, the 14th would be Paul. And so he was called by Jesus appeared to by Jesus and Paul saw him and heard him speak directly to him and this is what the definition of an apostle it's important that we understand this for the scripture purposes when the term apostle is used in the scriptures it means to have been with Jesus personally to have witnessed Jesus's resurrection personally that's what the scripture refers to when it uses the term apostle there's no I'm mistaking it. Um, but literally, what Paul says is, You are made new in Christ Jesus and you are called saints. Now, some of your versions might say, Called to be saints. I want to let you know that that is wrong. You are called saints. And it seems crazy that he's calling these people who are getting drunk in the community wine and doing all their junk saints. Doesn't this seem crazy? But friends, he calls you and I a saint. The same root word is the word sanctified, hagios, to be set apart. A saint. The Catholic idea is an unbiblical one. Uh, To be a saint, have to have performed some miracles and after you're dead people pray to you. The Bible says not to pray to the dead. This This is a, I don't know where in the world, oh my goodness, don't get me started. But J. Vernon McGee, good old, how many love J. Vernon McGee? Yeah, I love J. Vernon McGee. He always he said this several times um, that we're called saints, not ain'ts. And there's no in between. <laughs> I, I love that. So for those, he says, for those who believe in him, Jesus had made you holy, just like he's done for people everywhere. Gotta love it, right? He says, hello. This is Paul, your spiritual father, and by the way, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself. And he reminds us then of the gospel, as he does all the time. He reminds them of the great hope that there is in knowing Jesus. And they were totally imperfect, yet he addresses them as saints. Grace and peace. Common Greek greeting. Also, of course, shalom and... um, Hebrew is is peace. So Paul does this in all his letters and reference as he uses the Greek greeting. So you'll, you'll never have the peace of God until you have the grace of God. And he always uses this order without mistake. Sometimes he just says grace a few times, but he always follows grace with peace, typically. We cannot have the peace of God without understanding the grace of God. And that means stepping into faith, trusting Him with our life, and committing to Him as our Lord and Savior. Uh, Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ is confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word rich means filthy rich. You are rich in the grace of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's so good. Beware of any teaching that says, that we shouldn't expect the return of Jesus anytime. Beware of it. He says right here, he uses the word apocalypsis, which is the word we get apocalypse from. Um, and he says that because of this, Jesus is coming. And he says, You are guiltless because of the richness of the grace of God. What a beautiful statement to be guiltless. He would, he would answer, Um, if if I were to ask you, are you guiltless? You might say no. We would answer no, but we understand those have been saved that the grace of God, by the grace of God I can say no, but I know that in Jesus he has covered my sin. We would say we are not guiltless, but Paul says, wait, you are. You are guiltless. He explains that He expands the grace of God when he says that this is because trusting and believing and following Jesus. And on that day of his return, the apocalypsis, that you will be found blateless. Imagine guiltless. Imagine never having any guilt in your life ever. Imagine not having the the weight of of sin or on your conscience or, or that you did something wrong. Or you were in 405 traffic and you held up that finger. In a fit of rage. Or <coughs> you said that thing, or you did that thing. And the pressure of the responsibility of, of how it has defined your character before others has made you grumpy and, and, and testy and guilty. Imagine not having any of that ever. That's what Paul says. Imagine guiltlessness on that level. zero regret. No fear from or because of your failure. No self-inflicted condemnations. This is the beauty of the grace of God. This is what salvation means, friends, doesn't it? This is the richness of God's goodness that when we step into his grace, the guilt is removed. The burden of my sin is taken from me. I mean, this is good preaching. There should be like a lot more amens. Uh, We could do like a soundtrack like they used to have in the old sitcoms, you know, and play it back. Yeah. Zero regret. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of the glory blameless with great joy. How is this possible? Uh, Justification, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, do I have these scriptures? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not based on how you perform, not based on how you behave, not how much guilt you can carry, none of those things. If you had a record of your faults, uh, it would be impossible, right? carrying those around. Look at verse 9. Uh, it's out of where we're going today a little further into next week, but verse 9 Paul writes God is faithful 1 Corinthians 1:9 by whom you were called into the fellow I knew I had those called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord. God made a promise to us friends, and because God is incapable incapable of lying he will see it through he is faithful he knows what he is doing there is nothing on this planet there is not one thing in this world that he doesn't know what to do and how to do it and because he cannot lie he cannot take back his promise that means that you and i because of his grace when we receive him are guiltless Now, there is something that happens in the life of a believer when we step into this reality. When someone comes to Christ and we confess him as Lord and we say, God, forgive me of my sin and his Holy Spirit touches us, there is a real joy there the grass is greener, the sky is bluer, all kinds of things begin to happen in your life. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't realize that. But, well, this modern Christianity just says, repeat this prayer after me and you're saved. You see, coming to Christ means laying it all down in genuine repentance and saying, God, I realize that I can't do this on my own. I got to have you, Jesus. How is this possible? Just because of what he says in, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If that's good news, right? Yes. It's impossible. Let me tell you, guilt is a heavy thing. Let's, let me find this scripture here. Where are we? 1 Corinthians? It's in the New Testament, right? Okay. Well, I don't know what page it's on in your Bible. It's here somewhere. This whole idea, look at what he says here. See, how come you need a uh, one of those things where. Selling. Look at what happens to your Bible. Just gets totally brutalized. Um, he's, he says this so carefully. He says, he will keep you to the end so that you will be blameless. This whole idea of guilt is huge because if a person doesn't know Christ, they are living under this constant guilt. And it is the Holy Spirit's job to make unbelievers miserable. to convict them of their sin. For believers, it's a different story. The Bible clearly tells us that those who have not received Christ, who do not believe, cannot even stand in the presence of God. They can't even be in the presence of God. This is huge. He he says here that, that there is no shame for those who that, that are believers. No shame opposite for those who are outside of Christ. Remember, uh, Jeremiah says, the world has lost its senses. They don't even blush, is the word. There's no blushing because there's no understanding of the gravity and the weight of the penalty of our sin. Friends, not knowing Jesus and not walking in faith is genuinely A dangerous proposition. It's a a dangerous, lifeless life. It is always the wondering of how to achieve this next thing so I can find some contentment while I'm right here. But there's a difference between the wicked and the saved. Um, The the things that God says for the believer are different. He says in Colossians uh, that he has canceled the record of debt against us. We don't have the pressure of that debt. The guilt and shame should should not uh, drive should not drive the believer or or fall on us with such heaviness because we can bring it to God, ask Him for His grace and forgiveness, and help us to restore whatever we broke. And He does it. He does it. There's nothing that we can do stepping outside of his grace that we can't walk back and say, God, forgive me for being in that place. (coughs) Forgive me for doing that, for behaving this way. God, I need you so much. When I was a young person, 13 years old, I knew I was called to ministry, and God spoke to my life clearly. And I went to a camp, and, and later on, when I turned 15, I went to another camp, and I got angry with God because my dad planted churches, all you know, and I thought, you know, well, you know, it's, if that's what being a pastor looked like in these little Podunksville places, and I, I thought it was tough on mom and dad, and it was. I said, I don't want to do that. And right in the service, the Holy Spirit, in a camp with a sawdust floor on wooden benches, the speaker, Rob Larson, from a church in Curetting, California, was preaching. And he said, you know, for the, the pastor, ultimately, the church Jesus culture came out of that hole. Anyway, he was preaching, and he pointed and said, some young man sitting in this section is resentful of the ministry because of your experience. And I came running to the altar like, I'm crying, I'm weeping. Like, God, forgive me for for, you know. Why? Because of the grace of God. Because God takes the guilt. He takes the guilt. He takes the pressure. He takes the self-condemnation. He wraps it up all in a ball and puts it under the blood of the cross. And he says, it is finished. You don't have to live there any longer. I like this part. God promises all this to us, friends. But in verse 9... He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. So God is faithful. He never fails, his faithfulness endures. God, you made a promise to me. Your faithfulness is from everlasting to everlasting. Imagine that time frame pre existent eternity to existent eternity. He is faithful. Faithfulness means that what he has said is true and he will never break his word. Um, He will never lie. He means what he means and he says what he says. And then he says, you were called into the fellowship of his son. Two big words to me. He is faithful. He has called me into fellowship of his son. God has made these promises to us, friends, and and, and because he can't lie, he's going to see it through. His faithfulness is a promise, but his desire for us to have the fellowship with him as his children is huge. Being in that place where we understand that having a relationship with Jesus is more than what we do. It's not how well we serve. It's not only how much we can give. Faithfulness to Jesus, that's why we have stress on the word and prayer in our church, because faithfulness to Christ is diving into his presence and and getting to know him better. That's what the servant of God, that's what the person of God, the follower of Jesus, is supposed to do, to find out what pleases the Lord. And you know what comes as a result of that life? a life filled with more contentment than you can find anywhere else. And God is faithful. See, the the good news about this part is that he says right here that the fellowship of his son implies a real relationship of intimacy, a relationship that is unlike any other relationship on earth. In fact, Jesus said himself that my relationship with you is gonna be so great, it's gonna be much better than even the relationship with your parents or your brother or sister. It's going to be far greater than the, the spouse you hold in your arm. It's going to be something you could never imagine. Pam and I have always said from the t- very time that we were married that each of us, we're number two. Jesus is number one. He is the first. He is premium. He is, and I asked one guy one time, he, he was being drugged to church by his wife countless years. He just did not ever want to go. The only reason he was ever in church was because his wife drug him to church, Right? When she died, it wasn't that many years later, I never saw him again. And so it took some time, and I went back, and he, he said, Yeah, I was just going for her. Friends, Jesus should be number one. Jesus or nothing. It's all Jesus, or forget any of it. Forget the next motorcycle, forget the next job. Forget the next adventure. Forget the next Netflix series. Forget whatever brings, seems to bring contentment. Forget the next plant in your garden. Jesus. Jesus. This is the intimacy of our Lord. A God that sings over you. A God that rejoices over you with song, I should say and that loves you and yet do we return that you see the joy of this i think greeting that paul gives here in conclusion is is that he is stressing the gospel he's saying that jesus came and gave his life a figure among historical accounts that are both extra biblical and very biblical of a person who came in the flesh his claims of being god validated by all that he did arose from the grave, ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to be with us and draw us closer to himself. What a joy.